Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking about communications and politics and geopolitics. This week, the United States FCC voted to discard net neutrality rules, which makes broadband providers treat all websites equally. Seems like a very technical discussion, but uh, the whole tech world is up in arms about it. And many people think that this has got implications that go well beyond that. But rather than getting a bunch of technologists and lawyers together to discuss the short-term implications of it, I thought it would be more interesting to take a step back. And I'm very happy to be joined by Heidi Twarek, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of British Columbia. But she's also just written a new book, which will be coming out hopefully in 2018, called News from Germany, the competition to control world communications from 1900 to 1945, which is a description of a previous battle about global communications infrastructure. Um, And what I thought we could do is look at the discussion this week, but put it into this wider historical context. And it's maybe also a, a nice way to help people as they move beyond their last working week into the Christmas holidays and start thinking about the big picture for, for, uh, for 2018. So Heidi, why don't you start with this discussion this week? And you know, for those of uh, the listeners who are not experts on net neutrality, maybe you can give a very quick description of what's actually happened and why you think it matters and how it fits into this, how history can help us understand what's going on. Sure. Pleasure to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. So as as you said, this this could seem like a very technical and pretty boring question. How should you actually categorize the internet? So the debate was between whether it should be categorized as a public utility or not. And this was commonly called by uh, net neutrality, which was a term coined coined by a Columbia professor, Tim Wu. And that sort of helped it take off and seem a little less technical than deciding whether the internet should be classified as an infrastructure under something called Title I or uh, Title II. And this was a a long-standing debate that had been uh, going on since the beginning of the internet, essentially, because when the the internet was first commercialized, it was categorized under something called Title I, which was not the the net neutrality version. And then following a series of, of court cases and debates, the Obama administration, Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, in 2015 decided finally to classify uh, the internet as Title II or a public utility, otherwise known as net neutrality. And this was uh, celebrated by all of the the various internet platforms and and tech people are saying this is great because it means that everybody has equal equal access to all of the various websites on the internet. None of the the service providers or the infrastructure providers like Verizon or AT&T can slow down certain types of traffic. And this was really important for certain companies like Netflix that were providing a huge amount of traffic along the internet that they wouldn't necessarily be slowed or forced to pay extra fees to a company like Verizon or or AT&T. And immediately when the, the Trump administration's FCC came in, headed by Ajit Pai, who used to work for Verizon, the net neutrality decision has now been reversed in, in what was obviously a, a very 
political decision. So that's where we are. And Tim Berners-Lee, the founder of the internet, said this is the end of the internet as we knew it. Innovation will die. Yes, and so have many of the people who who own companies that provide content on the internet. So one of the things I think is often misunderstood about this decision is that the the content providers are quite worried because, say, you're Netflix, it might mean you're now going to have to pay a bunch of extra money so that all of this video streaming can still happen at the same pace it was happening before. Whereas if you're Verizon or AT&T and you're providing infrastructure, those are the companies that were lobbying behind the scenes for for net neutrality to be overturned. And I think that's where history is also important because it helps us to remember we've got to distinguish between the companies that created the infrastructure, which are often forgotten about, versus the companies that have created content. And so to understand this decision, we've got to understand the Verizons and the AT&Ts, the ones providing the internet infrastructure, they're happy about it. Agit Pai comes out of that world as someone who used to work for Verizon versus the, the content providers or the creators of the internet like Tim Berners-Lee who are concerned about the content question. But how does it impact politics? Oh, potentially in, in all kinds of different ways. I mean, it sets up a potential conflict between the European Union and the United States. So there was an article by the French head of telecommunications who also heads the, the European regulators. And he wrote an article for Slate saying... I don't want to tell you what to do, America, but really you should keep net neutrality because this doesn't discourage investment and it's actually going to be, be a way of us getting even more investors to come to Europe. So his perspective on it was the content providers that already exist, they'll be able to find a way to pay any of these tolls, but you're preventing new innovation. You're preventing the, the guy or girl in the garage from fun founding a new company and actually being able to send that content over. So why it. does that lead to a transatlantic fight? Well, it depends on how internet flows are actually going to function. So I see this as part of a sort of broader divergence between how Europeans and Americans are seeing the internet. So Europeans are really concerned about questions like Previous. privacy and... Privacy. That's what they teach you in British Columbia, is it? <laughs> this is all my years of America coming through that now I'm stressing <laughs> words differently. <laughs> so, so things like uh, the creation of, of the GDPR, the new privacy regulations that will come into force. So you mean the General Data Protection Regulation, which is um, uh, a first attempt by Europeans to actually create their own version of the internet and to allow consumers and citizens to to have some say over how the data gets used rather than just allowing uh, big companies to steal people's rights with lots of fine print which they don't look at when they uh, when they agree to put things on their platforms. Yeah, so I'd say it's part of a, a suite of ideas that the European Union and Europeans are putting forward about how the internet should really function. And, and the GDPR stuff, which will, will come into effect in 2018, is the idea that people should know what kind of data companies are holding on them, that they can theoretically ask for some of that to be deleted. And because, of course, the the data flows go across borders and across oceans and servers are held in multiple different places. So, for example, of multinational companies headquartered in Europe, their servers might be in the U.S. Any kind of regulation that comes in in Europe is going to have effects in, in the U.S. as well. So something like a net neutrality battle is not necessarily just about what's happening in the U.S. Because let's say a theoretical company that, that doesn't yet exist isn't really able to, to break out of the boundaries of the US. It won't be able to then send its stuff all the way over to Europe. So a new Google, for example. The likelihood that a new Google might be found in the US previously seemed pretty high. 
But if the turning back of net neutrality makes it harder for the smaller companies to break through, it may mean that European companies have a greater chance. It may mean that we end up with the dominance of these few platforms that have emerged over the last 10, 15 years, the, the GAFA, the Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and, and maybe Twitter on top. And, and this, I think, is one of the things that, that gets us back to the history question, which is what does it mean to have a technology that's potentially dominated by a sort of oligopolistic group of companies. And there have been other technologies where this has been true in the past. So, for example, uh, submarine cables. So the first successful transatlantic submarine cable is laid in 1866 uh, by a group of Anglo-American entrepreneurs. And they are so successful that they will then go on and lay almost every submarine cable around the world thereafter. And and a very small group of companies will, will dominate this technology from the 1860s all the way up until it's really superseded in the interwar period. So there have been previous technologies where an oligopoly has kind of controlled things. And the debate for the historians about this technology is, did that stifle innovation or what did that do to the way that people communicated? So your PhD was looking at this battle between the kind of wires which the Anglo-Saxons had laid down and new wireless technologies which allowed other players like Germany to come up and challenge them. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Because I think that could provide a very interesting way of, of, of going beyond this, the commercial and the political significance to, to a more geopolitical dimension of this story. Yeah, absolutely. So, so basically, when, when the Anglo-American companies first lay these submarine cables around the world, all of the various countries who want to use them are essentially quite happy to be involved in this system. It's regulated through the International Telegraph Union. And until really the turn of the 20th century, the system is, is dominated by Anglo-American cable companies. But at that point, Germans start to think of themselves as a country that should be a global power, not just a European power. So they want to become more powerful in geopolitics, want to improve foreign trade, and they want to improve cultural views of, of Germany around the world. And they look at this global system of communications dominated by Anglo-American companies and they say, hang on, this system is boxing Germany in because if Anglo-American companies dominate this system, then maybe they can also censor the content that's being sent around the world. So what German government elites and, and industrial elites think is, okay, we could also lay our own cables, but at the same time, perhaps we should invest in a new technology that can just bypass this system entirely. And so they invest in wireless telegraphy that will later become radio. And they see this away as a way of just bypassing Anglo-American cables completely. So in 1902, the, the British government subsidizes the, the completion of what they call an all-red route around the world. So this is where submarine cables go all around the world, and they only land on British or British imperial territory. And the Germans look at this and say, aha, this is evidence of a, of a competition in communications, and if a war breaks out, we know what will happen. The British will cut off our ability to communicate with the rest of the world. How can we prevent that? We need to create our own equivalent but we need to do it with wireless because then there are no wires to be cut. So just before World War I breaks out, the Germans create their equivalent or wireless route around the world with their wireless towers and all of the disparate small German colonies around the world. And so this sort of sets the stage for a, for a battle between uh, British and German conceptions of communications, and this will continue actually until the end of, of World War II under various guises. So what's the modern-day equivalent of that? Well, there are multiple potential modern-day equivalents. If you want to see Germany at this period as a sort of second-tier power that wants to use information as a way of 
breaking out of the Anglo-American monopoly, you could certainly look to Russia, where Vladimir Putin and his uh, spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, have purportedly said that they think RT and Sputnik and so on are most important because they're going to break the Anglo-American monopolization of global information. And, and one of the things that they've said is they don't actually necessarily care how many people see it. They just want to break what they see as an Anglo-American stranglehold on on global information. And we also now know that uh, the Russians have been surveying the undersea cables which supply the internet. So remember, the internet is really a very physical infrastructure, even if we can all use our, our wireless phones. So there are lots of ways in which uh, the Germany of the early 20th century and, and the Russia of the early 21st century parallel each other and seeing information as more than just uh, providing news. It's about the geopolitical consequences and it's also about controlling that uh, that actual physical infrastructure. And what about um, uh, other powers? Like China, in a way, looks more like Germany in the um, early 20th century than Russia does because it's a rising power. Yeah. Um, its economy is catching up with the US economy and um, it's uh, also uh, threatening to revise the, the balance of power in lots of different regions in a way that isn't really true of Russia. Yeah, I think that that's also very true. And also in this space, I mean, the, the only country with companies which are anything like as big as the gaffers is China. Yeah, I think that that's also very true. And also in this space, I mean, the, the only country with companies which are anything like as big as the gaffers is China. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's actually very true. And also because you can see in the Chinese companies like Tencent a lot of government support, or at least, let's say, uh, the government allowing certain companies like Tencent to exist. So, so there's a lot of ways in which there are strong parallels there. And, and also because I think the, the Chinese government conceives of news or CCTV as, as a form of what a new National Endowment for Democracy report called Sharp Power. So this, this idea of sharp power was to try and get beyond the dichotomy between hard power and soft power. Ah, yeah, another one, because we had smart power yeah. before. So what is sharp yeah. power? So sharp power is the idea that you would use something like culture or news as a means to change hard politics or geoeconomics or something along those lines. So rather than just seeing, say, film as a nice thing that improves people's image of, say, the United States through Hollywood, that, that actually a country like China or Russia will use the equivalent to achieve political or economic goals. And that, I think, is, is one useful way of trying to see what's happening in the news space with something like a CCTV. Another good example that's somewhat parallel to what Germany was doing is Al Jazeera through Qatar. So that Al Jazeera is, is part of a whole suite of tools being used by the Qatari government to try to improve Qatar's image around the world. Obviously a much smaller state, but still, I think, using news for these broader purposes. Because what you're seeing is a kind of mix of, of strategies, though. There's some of the strategies you're talking about are about uh, getting directly involved in um, Western countries through fake news and um, information campaigns and, uh, you know, a lot of the Russian examples uh, are like that. Another set of examples is about, you know, there's a lot of evidence of Chinese tech companies buying more and more shares in American and European tech companies. For example, Tencent that you were talking about earlier has just bought into Spotify in a, in a kind of big way. Um, but there are other ones who are, who are getting involved. But then there is also... Um, 
the sort of balkanization of the internet. There is a Chinese internet which is closed to, uh, to the US and, and big, the big Chinese companies are forced to keep their, their servers in China and there's a set, new different set of norms which is uh, emerging around the, the, the Chinese internet. I mean, how, how do these, you know, are there examples for all of those things um, historically or is that, is that a kind of different... Uh, Oh, it's a great question with many different components. So, okay, let me, let me try and attack it in a slightly different way, which is to say that one of the things that, that people used to say about the internet is we're now all so interconnected that this can't possibly be balkanized, right? Just like the rhetoric used to be, uh, the internet will draw us all together and it will make everybody free and the Arab Spring is an example of the sort of utopian potential of the internet. And we've moved away from that one. But now I think we're getting to the point where we see that the, the interconnection of the internet doesn't guarantee continuing interconnection. And that, that always reminds me of, of Norman Angel, right? So Norman Angel, before World War I, he's always famous for being the guy, Great the Great Illusion, who publishes his book, The Great Illusion, where, where what everybody remembers is him saying, we're so economically intertwined that war would just be completely irrational and so it's not going to happen. Of course, then World War I breaks out and proves him wrong. What everybody forgets is that he doesn't just say it's economics. What he says is the telegraph and the bank, the two things, communications technology and the intertwining of finance, those two things together are what will prevent war from breaking out because it's so irrational. So I worry about the, the still sort of slightly utopian vision that the interconnection of the internet will somehow, A, prevent war from breaking out, or, or B, not be balkanized. So, so that to me is, I think, a very telling example that we shouldn't always think that, that this is a one-way street that was misconstrued pre-World War I, and, and China is a very good example, um, but so are Russia and Iran. And, and one thing, uh, this is also, it's not really a historical example, but it is something that I think was very underappreciated at the time, is, is the way that Russia, Iran, and, and China in 2012 argued in the International Telegraph Union that what they really wanted was the ITU to have great control over the internet because then there would be more national sovereignty over the different internet systems administered by the ITU, which is uh, headed by a, a Chinese person. And at the time, this was resoundingly rejected by um, the American Congress, one of the few things where they basically voted unanimously in, in 2012. So this has been a ba battle, actually, that's been going on behind the scenes for some time. But I think the, the historical example reminds us that this is just not a one-way street of increasing interconnection. It, it can go in the opposite direction. It certainly seems like China is pushing that way, uh, Russia is pushing that way, and it's not clear that the US and, and Europe have enough stamina to push back. That's the sort of slightly pessimistic take, but, but I'm not sure that we're going in the direction of increasing interdependence here. So um, where does it take us, though? Because like, you started describing this battle. Obviously, uh, wires are still there, and, but wireless technology is kind of also a, a fact of everyday life. It, it has also been maybe in some ways both more globalised since you started, but also probably more balkanised as well. I mean, how, how do you... How do, do you see the story developing how did your original story develop what do you how do you see the contemporary version of it going forward oh so as the as the historian the one thing we know is that uh, human beings are terrible at predicting the future we, <laughs> we really are but if i but if i had to give a, a some guesses about where it might go i mean i think we're, we're going to have a, a really interesting transatlantic 
battle about what the internet might look like. And the question is going to be, are those who are predicting that uh, Europe is a big enough market that it will influence what happens in the US going to be right? So that was the discussion around the question of the right to be forgotten. Would the right to be forgotten be so important within Europe that it would essentially change what a Google did in the US? And that doesn't seem to have been the case so far. But let's see what happens with uh, the antitrust suits in Europe, uh, with the Apple tax question, and with the introduction of, of GDPR and of, of various other uh, data exchange agreements. So there's the safe harbor data exchange agreement between the US and the European Union, which actually needs to be renewed every single year. So it's unlike the previous agreement where there was no renewal built into it. Now that has to be renewed every 12 months. So I think it will actually be very interesting to see what ends up happening and whether developments in Europe may actually push these U.S. companies to change some of the ways that they deal with their consumers within the U.S. and elsewhere. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because I was in Silicon Valley a few months ago talking to a lot of very senior tech leaders, including the heads of some of the, the biggest, uh, some of these big uh, uh, conglomerates that you were talking about earlier. And the one thing that they were quite worried about was the European Union. In fact, one of them said to me um, that they had a real problem finding people to do public affairs in Brussels because they kind of knew that they could uh, manipulate Washington um, very successfully. Nothing was going to come out of Washington which undermined them because they knew how to play American politics very well. But they had no idea what was going to come out of the European Union and how to stop it from happening. So no, none of the kind of good public affairs people even wanted to work in Brussels because it was such a, a kind of terrifying space. Um, so th- I think there is a, a sense of foreboding, particularly after what happened to Apple and, and Google, that um, they might be a, a wall of regulation coming out of Brussels and that the European market is sufficiently big that this could be problematic. Does that mean that it's more likely that you will get a, a kind of period where European regulations become global regulations and that there is a kind of race to the top and that this uh, just becomes the way that people work in different places? Or does it simply mean that you'll have a, a more and more balkanized internet with, you know, a Chinese internet that's already developed, which will be the biggest internet, which already is the biggest internet in terms of the number of people on it. Um, you'll have kind of European strategies emerging, maybe some European companies that will do well in Europe, um, but they might get shut out of the US that becomes more protectionist as well. And that uh, what you're seeing is a kind of multipolarity uh, of the internet, which mirrors the, the multipolar world and therefore actually makes it much harder for people to, to project power in the ways that you were describing earlier, be out, at least outside of their uh, narrow areas. Yeah, we're going to see. I think it's, it's quite hard to predict, but, but it is potentially possible. And some of it will just be physical infrastructure that, that people won't see. So it may be that one of the results of this European regulation is that a lot of the Silicon Valley companies, in order to try and preempt some of the problems, will have lots of servers in Europe rather than storing all the information on servers in the US. So some of it might be just physical infrastructure that happens behind the scenes that most people using the internet 
are unaware of. I mean, the, the chance that Facebook will disappear as a major player anytime soon seems unrealistic, but whether it will look different in different countries, I think that's a real question. So let, let me give you one ex example of how this has happened. So Germany just introduced in October a new hate speech law, which was driven by the desire to really crack down on social media companies that, that German politicians believed were simply not fulfilling German law. They were not deleting things that were obviously hate speech. And uh, there had been a couple of years where, where Germany had tried to get these companies to voluntarily comply, and they, by the beginning of 2017, they were scared by the US election. They didn't want that to happen in Germany, and they wanted to move fast, and they wanted to use regulations. So now if Facebook, Twitter, etc., any social media company with more than 2 million users in Germany doesn't delete something that's obviously hate speech and illegal in Germany, within 24 hours they're fined up to 50 million euros. So this was introduced in October, so we'll have to see exactly how it's implemented. But it has led to some weird quirks. For example, multiple American commentators on Twitter have now changed their location to Germany because they say it stops a bunch of trolls from actually giving them all sorts of hate speech comments below their tweets. So there are now several hundred, at least from what I can tell, American commentators who are purportedly within Germany. So it's, it's, a weird, it's not quite a balkanization because you can claim that you're located anywhere, but it does perhaps point the way to how that could potentially function in the future. That we might, that There is A, no regulation that is completely national because anybody can now claim they're in Germany and then stuff is going to get deleted. But B, if real walls are set up a la the Chinese internet, that could be the kind of world that we see where Twitter or Facebook look completely different in different countries. So people think they're using the same platform, but they're actually not. So the internet, will, instead of changing the real world, will simply reflect it even more perfectly. Where <laughs> we all think that we're part of some kind of universal thing, whereas in fact we're incredibly parochial and particular in terms of how we're dealing with things. And, and in some ways that's actually how the internet always was. So there was this incredibly interesting study about the friends that people had on Facebook, which showed that, say, people in Britain were much more likely to have friends in former Commonwealth or Imperial countries that were formerly belonging to Britain than, say, a person in France. And the French had great connections with French colonies and so on. So you can see, even reflected within an internet where people could be friends with anyone on, on Facebook, these historical connections and precedents really mattered. So there was a brief moment where I think there were, there were commentators who thought the internet could somehow change the world in which we lived. But like every other communications technology, it turned out it was neither inherently good, nor was it bad, but it also wasn't neutral. It was always affected by politics and by the users who've changed in all kinds of different ways, both good and nefarious. So in that sense, the internet has an unprecedented number of users, but it hasn't really evolved outside of politics, just like no other communications technology evolved outside of politics. There was just a Silicon Valley dream that people bought into for a certain period of time that even the Silicon Valley people now realize was always just a kind of utopian dream. Wow. Okay. Well, that was a pretty interesting discussion um, of the net neutrality decision. By the way, just before we, we move to the last thing which we need to do, which I should have told you about before... The bookshelf segment. Um, uh, are you in favour of net neutrality or against it? What do you, what's your kind of... Um... So the, there is actually a genuine historical debate about this because some people, when they look at submarine cables, say 
look, there was a set of oligopolistic companies, but in the end, we still ended up with things like the telephone and radio. So maybe it doesn't matter so much whether they have net neutrality or not. I think it's probably better to have it because the internet then can hopefully be extended to places like rural communities where it's frankly not profitable to extend your broadband network. And by classifying the internet more as a public utility, we can do what is a public service, which is ensuring that we can have 100% internet coverage. Okay. So there's one thing which we still have to do on the podcast, which is um, our bookshelf segment where we ask people to recommend something that's on their bookshelf. Could be a book or a could even be a, a film or a television program if you ever had a chance to read recently. But as an academic, I'm sure, I'm sure you've got something on your bookshelf. Yes. So uh, a book that, that I read recently that I think is, is quite fascinating is a book called Everybody Lies by Seth Stevens Davidovitz. And, and this is a, a guy who did a PhD in economics at Harvard, but also worked at Google. And he's basically looking at all kinds of Google data to try and figure out what are people really thinking. So the reason that I find this book fascinating is because it shows a way for us to move beyond opinion polls, which we're still addicted to using as a way of trying to measure what people think. And what Stevens Davidovitz does in this book is show us how we can use things like Google Trends to get at what people are searching for. So instead of the opinion poll problem, which is you ask people a question, are they giving you what they really believe or what they think you want to hear? You use Google data to see what are people really searching for. Some of it is pretty dark. Some of it is pretty funny. But it's potentially a new way of trying to get at what people are thinking about various issues. Great. Well, that's a, a fantastic um, uh, recommendation. I'm going to look out for it. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, um, we have put links up both to that recommendation but also to some of the things that Heidi's been writing on our page which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts and um, if you really have enjoyed it then please make sure that you don't let your friends and acquaintances miss out on the opportunity to listen to it as well so it'd be great if you could write about it on your Facebook page or on ours or tweet about it But even more importantly, that you rush to the reviews and ratings page on iTunes and give us a rating and a review. And if you send a link to it to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu, you could be one of the last people of 2017 who wins an ECFR End of the World podcast mug which you could keep for yourself and it will make you the envy of all of your friends and acquaintances. Or you could even sneakily give it to someone as a Christmas present if you, uh, if you hurry up. We can hopefully get it to you in time for, uh, for the season's greetings. But for now, from Heidi Twerk and myself, Mark Lennon, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch and our editor is Katarina Butel-Atsunaru. <laughs>